0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello everyone, I'm Matthew Taylor, the RSA's Chief Executive, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the latest event in our Bridges to the Future series, where we're exploring ideas to shape change in a post-Covid world. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Nigel Topping. Nigel Topping, FRSA, because he's just become a fellow. Nigel is the UK's high-level climate action champion for the COP26 talks, which were, of course, due to take place in Glasgow this year, but have had to be postponed due to the coronavirus crisis. Nigel, welcome.
1: Morning, Matthew. Lovely to join you, both as a fellow, but also in this conversation.
0: Well, now you're a fellow, this will be the first of many conversations. (laughs) Good, good. I look forward to it. Uh, now, Nigel, I mean, what a few months you've had. You took up the climate champion role at the end of January. And you, it must have been, what, days or barely weeks into the new job when you began to realise the impact uh, the virus was going to have. So how has that
1: been for you personally? Well, um, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, always, it's always a little bit discombobulating to go into a, a, a new role. Right, so there's always a, a, an adjustment. So it's just meant there's been a lot more to adjust to than I had expected. Um, I guess, I mean, you know, it's... it's a, the, the role's a really interesting one because the role was created in Paris by the parties to the, the UN Climate Convention. So in recognition of the fact that governments alone can't solve climate change. And so the role is to work with everyone who's not the government. So with businesses, cities, investors, civil society. So I guess the main thing that's changed is that I've not been able to go... For example, I was planning on... On a couple of trips to Africa um, you know Africa will uh, an African country yet to be decided will be the president for the COP following the UK COP in Glasgow so I really keen to start building some relationships there um, obviously it's meant that a lot of leaders have really limited bandwidth at the moment because they're dealing with immediate health and economic crises um, but it's also given me more time to build a team and get organised so it's a, it's been a mixed blessing
0: I mean, taking on this role, I guess that one of the things you look at is the history of cops and why some of them were very successful. People talk about Paris, for example, and others w- were less so. So uh, have you kind of developed a theory of change about about what it is that is necessary to make these events uh, work? And, and has that view been in any way influenced by the fact that on the one hand, you've got a slightly longer lead in time now to COP26, but also it's in a very kind of different
1: environment. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, the first, I mean, I, my background is in the private sector and I started working, if you like, in this nexus between policy, investors and businesses on climate change in 2007. So the first, my first experience of a COP was Copenhagen in 2009, which is generally considered to be um, one of the more disappointing one of the ones where expectations were were, um least met by outcomes um and i experienced you know real real lack of organization and there was some there was some real chaos So there were some good things that came out of it but it was really disappointing um and that but then i also experienced the high of paris right so i would say if you say copenhagen paris glasgow for me uh, uh, peak moments of expectation copenhagen didn't deliver paris did so our job is to make sure Glasgow does. That, I mean, my main theory of change is that, well, it's very complicated. I think it's the most complicated international treaty ever. It involves every single country having to agree every single comma. I think I think if, if it works, it will go down in history as the most important treaty Civilization has ever entered into under itself. i challenge anyone to come up with something that's as complex, as transformational, as important. Um, but for me, the most important innovation that happened in the run-up to Paris, which led to my role, is the recognition that, if you like, the Westphalian system of multilateralism alone cannot deliver something this transformational. And we need the political clout and economic clout of mayors, governors of states. Like, California is the fifth biggest economy in the world that has no seat at the table, right? But certainly have a huge role in leadership, or businesses and investors for for obvious reasons, that they will have to be the proximate deliverers of deliverers of most solutions. So that, that my main theory of change is what I would now call the ambition loop, is that we need businesses and investors and cities to raise the bar of ambition. So you have like National Express saying they'll never buy another diesel bus, or the city of Paris saying they'll ban combustion engines by 2030. That kind of movement from those maybe more agile, more flexible actors makes it easier for policymakers, politicians to raise the floor, if you like, so the UK government then starts to bring its combustion engine ban forward from 2040 to maybe 2032. And you keep going around that ambition loop It's a positive feedback loop of ambition. Um, so that's why you know my work is with those businesses and cities, investors and regions to try and highlight the leadership that's possible and build that kind of exponential change when you get that feedback loop going.
0: And I think, exemplifying that kind of kind of multi-strand approach but also approach which involves each participant actually bringing something to the table is the race to zero campaign which the UN has just launched tell us more about about race to zero because it's very exciting yeah well
1: it's one thing that's so exciting is how quickly the if you like the north star of what we're aiming for has shifted you remember in Paris the agreement was to aim for well below two degrees with best efforts to get to 1.5, with the 1.5 really being fought for by the small island states, who were very literally chanting 1.5 to stay alive, because it really is existential for them. But it wasn't until October 2018 when the International Panel on Climate Change published their special report on 1.5 degrees that I think the penny kind of collectively dropped. And then we started to see growing numbers of cities and businesses and first governments... Um, committing to net zero by 2050 or in many cases 2045 or 2040 or 2030 even um, so and then in, in September the Chilean presidency they, they were the presidents of COP25 which ended up being in Madrid and the Secretary General of the UN launched something called the Climate Ambition Alliance to try and put a, a wrap around all the countries committing to net zero and then in um, in 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 Madrid the UK government as incoming presidency joined that and Gonzalo Munoz who's my fellow champion so there's always it's a two cop cycle role I used to say two years but now we have (laughs) have to say two cop cycles Um, we've decided to put a wrapper around that for all of the non-state actors as we call or as the UN calls everyone who's not a national government Um, and we launched we launched that on Friday and we're seeing huge interest even and, and you know really astonishingly gonzalo just wrote an op-ed we now have 53 percent of global of the global economy covered by net zero goals right and we're 17 months away from cop so we won't get to 100 percent because politically that's not not realistic but we, we, we can build on 53 percent as a pretty strong base right and aim to get to i don't know 60 70 80 percent um uh, obviously a lot will depend on the election in, in america as well later this year so the, the race to zero is really an umbrella to say that like, we need not just two high-level champions like me and Gonzalo. We'll do what we can, but we need seven billion champions. Everybody can do something. Every business, every school, every city, um, every university, every sports club um, can com- as well as every country can commit to net zero. And that, and, and everyone's, re- you know, this is often been called the collective action problem. So it needs a collective action solution. So we've the number of org- Gonzalo and I set ourselves a target of ten xing the number of organisations who've committed from Madrid to Glasgow. It's grown nearly 70% in the last six months alone. We've now, we've just got 500 universities joining. We think there's a possibility of getting thousands of universities and tens of thousands of schools and millions of SMEs. You know, the, the International Chamber of Commerce have launched a net zero campaign and they have 45 million SMEs in in, in their um, chamber's membership. And all, all of that um, helps send a signal to politicians that they can be more confident in being bolder because many other people are committed and, and it's not just a 2050 target, it's what are you doing in the next five years, which is really crucial, so that we build that momentum.
0: This issue of prioritisation is so is so important. I mean, obviously, there are a few kind of Bolsonaro type outliers um, who kind of reject the agenda entirely, but for most countries, it's it's a kind of issue of prioritisation. And so let's look at that from a couple of angles. I mean, the first and most obvious one is in relation to recovery from the economic uh, position that we're well we're finding ourselves in already but which is going to become the absolute priority as as hopefully the health emergency slightly subsides um, t- tell us how you think about this kind of concept of re uh, green recovery because it's almost become a cliche everybody's talking about it there are lots of reports being published on it but, but take us to the very kind of heart of the argument for green recovery and what it really involves,
1: Nigel. Well, I mean, there's both a macro and a microeconomic argument. And the very simple macroeconomic argument is we know that the cost of tackling climate change is way less than the cost of not tackling it. So, so we know that the desirable econ- macroeconomic future is one is a net zero future. Right, and that, that's that's ever since the Stern report, like nearly fifteen years ago. Now we've known that, and that, and the evidence has only increased as costs have come down much faster than anyone predicted on renewables, and now storage, and then um, you know hydrogen will be the next you know, big thing that you, you're starting to see a you know, massive um, cost cost down. So the, the the basic argument is if you're going to spend a lot of public money on um, supporting a return to economic health and growth then you better make sure you don't waste it. So don't spend it on propping up a, the bits of the economy which were phasing out naturally. Spend it on the bits of the economy which need to ramp up. Now you can make that argument at the global level, but also at the national level, it's a competitiveness argument. I mean, I spent a lot of time working in the automotive sector when I was in manufacturing, and I think there's a risk that Detroit doesn't have a major car manufacturing company within... The next decade, because the US is getting its policy so wrong there that actually rolling back fuel efficiency standards, when the rest of the world, particularly China and Europe, the two biggest markets alongside the states, are saying we're going, we're going clean, we're going electric, and we're going every year we're going faster than we thought was possible last year. Um, so I think the the, the, the other thing I would say is that there's a big human dimension to these transitions, right? I mean, everyone, people think about coal. And in somewhere like whether it's Germany or China, with with, with big coal mining and coal burning industries, um, you've got to remember that they're often very tied to communities, particular communities, because the geographical nature of coal mining. Right? Um, and and if we don't plan for those transitions, then they will be more likely to be socially disruptive. So um, setting clear phase out dates for coal for combustion engines also allows us to have much more managed. Transitions where we can look at, you know, retraining, um, investing in alternative industries in, in economies that, or regions that are reliant on those those um, those industries that are, that 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 have to die actually, that have to die for our health and for the health of our economy. So, um, let's let's manage that process. And you can't manage that on a four year or five year electoral cycle. You have to manage that over a ten or twenty year cycle.
0: But yet there will be an urgency and I think that urgency will be a lot of the urgency will be about jobs. Yeah. And 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 one of the arguments for green recovery, we at the RSA are hosting a, a conversation of core cities exploring the case for a kind of locally led green recovery is around jobs and the the idea that certain priorities, uh, retrofitting of houses, planting of trees, greening of public spaces, rolling out um, uh, electric charging infrastructure, that these can be reasonably kind of job intensive uh, activities, activities that people can be trained to do relatively uh, quickly. So do you buy this argument that the green recovery is not only Macroeconomically, the best thing to do but also in the immediate uh, circumstances of quite high levels of joblessness and needing to retrain people that green projects offer a kind of
1: win-win yeah i mean i think there's sort of overlapping phases aren't there? there's the, the health crisis phase which hopefully we're starting to come out of in the uk although not everywhere in the world like some are still on the up on the curve then then there's the if you like the immediate economic rescue which you know may won't always be i don't think can always be green i think i think um you know getting people back working in hotels and pubs and restaurants doesn't seem to me like something which immediately has a green string attached to it right like like there is a question of how do we get those economies those sectors just moving again because um but and, and and then and then yes i totally agree that there are sectors where um, a, a, there's a very clear overlap between accelerating the the, the cleaning of the economy and creating jobs. Re- building retrofits is, is one of the best examples, isn't it? I mean, there's such a huge opportunity to improve the capital stock of the country's buildings. And this is not just the UK, this is in, in many, many countries. Um, create jobs, um, actually reduce the running cost of those buildings, improve the thermal, you know, have granny and granddad in better Heated and warmer houses in the winter. So there's also a health and social benefit of that. Um, so yeah, I think I think that. And, and but I think we also need to think about what are the right, what are the fiscal instruments that are available to treasuries around the world. Um, and because some some of them will require a lot of spending. And in a time of massively increased public debt because of the costs of managing the transition, I think we're going to have to really look as hard as we can for those. Measures which cost less to the to us as taxpayers. i so that, that's why I'm kind of think of some of the long term signals like setting a very clear phase out date for combustion engines. Um, de-risks a lot of investment from the private sector. So um, you know I keep, I'll keep going back to combustion engines because I'm a bit obsessed by it. But you know both Ben and Van Buren and now Bernard Looney from BP have have, have publicly said they would welcome they would welcome the end of that chunk of their market being sooner rather than later isn't that an extraordinary thing for a CEO to say end my market sooner and the, the reason is they want certain certainties A, I mean A they've got a reputu- reputational issue they've got to deal with so being on the front foot is the right thing for them to do now and they're realising they have to do that but B it makes sense for them as investors of, of, of shareholder capital is if the governments, are, if every government in the world said, "Last combustion engine will be sold in 2030," "Last one will be driven in 2040," that would remove an awful lot of risk from the investment portfolio of um, of oil CEOs, and that that de-risking of investment in the transition is really valuable for for every, you know for CEOs and for society, right? Because it allows us to have a much more uh, sort of more managed transition rather than a transition red in tooth and claw, which is which, which would be ugly. Right?
0: Well, I, I, I'm. I'm delighted to get that little glimpse of, of maybe one of your aspirations for for COP26 in terms of uh, in terms of the internal combustion engine. And actually, I, it, it's a thought I had before, which is that you know, as you say, there's lots of complexity to how we move to a green economy, how we tackle the climate emergency, and sometimes simplifying it in terms of very clear goals that everybody can understand. Uh, even if that's only part of the picture, it helps with mobilisation for people to go, OK, well, I can un- I can understand that thing. And, and, and your point about combust- combustion engines really fits that, it seems to me. It's a powerful, real and symbolic uh, goal. L- let me ask about a couple of things which I think are uh, are, are kind of maybe, I don't know, more problematic. So w- one would be that uh, I'm on the government's industrial strategy council and one of the kind of missions that it, there is around kind of uh clean uh, uh energy another around mobility and sometimes my concern Nigel is that is that we we focus on these kind of high profile cutting edge kind of high tech sectors and we ignore the real economy. So, you know, my every week I always like to get a surprising statistic that I then bore people with. But the, the, my one for this week uh, is the one I heard yesterday in a conversation I had with the Food and Drink Federation who told me there is not a single constituency in Britain that doesn't contain at least one food manufacturing plant that employs more than 50 people. Not a single constituency in Britain. And food is our largest manufacturing sector. But yet... We hear about you know electric cars, and we hear about uh, you know other kind of cutting edge technological innovations. We don't hear a great deal about how you would green our food industry. So it's part of what we need to do to to think a bit more about these more core parts of our uh, of
1: our economy. Well, I, I mean, I think we need to think about every part of the economy because we can't get to zero. Overall, without getting to zero everywhere, right? It's kind of obvious. Um, I think it's definitely the case that collectively we've focused much more on energy over the last two, three decades, and and now and now transport is catching up. I mean, I'm a big fan of the Our Future in the Land report. And I've, look, I've got it on my desk just to prove, prove it. Which obviously, oh, um, so um, I think there has been in the last couple of years a lot more emphasis on food land nature i mean nature and nature-based solutions really sort of popped in the collective imagination at the secretary general summit last year the food and land use coalition um the eat lancet report there's a lot of big reports on food and land last year so um i mean you know that that is one of the um the the uk government's um priorities for the cop they've you know i I mean i I i have a sort of um close relationship with the government's team but my man, my mandate is to work globally across across the non-set active community but obviously I'm very aware of what the government's priorities are and make, make sure we don't contradict or get misaligned so they've, they've identified five priorities so one, one is energy transition so particularly coal phase out accelerating that second is combustion engine third is nature-based solutions so um, I think as, as a global issue the, the the real focus there is particularly on the, the way that commodities currently drive deforestation because that's one of the biggest problems we have in terms of the link between food and emissions globally. But I think there is a lot more work going on. I've got um, several people in my team now working on the food, land, nature nexus. Um, I think the other two areas that have been relatively neglected have been um, the built environment. So there's a lot of great work now done by the World Green Building Council and the Global Alliance for Building and Construction that shows the pathways to zero for buildings, both operationally and in terms of embodied materials, is a really big part of that. And then heavy industry. I mean, we I, until recently I sat on the Energy Transitions Commission, and, and we published a report nearly two years ago now called Mission Possible. And most of the commissioners are energy and um, heavy industry CEOs. And that that report showed the the pathway both technically and economically to net zero in cement, steel, plastics, shipping, aviation, which historically were called the hard to abate sectors i think i think the phrase hard to abate is a kind of um get out of jail free card right it's it's too hard to abate well now we know we can do it and actually you see now we have you know mask shipping saying they'll get to net zero you have dalmia cement saying they'll get to net zero you have tusson krupp and arsenal metal at least in europe saying they'll get to net zero in europe so what we thought was hard or even impossible a couple of years ago is now becoming normal that's and that's that that for me is what gives me most hope in a way is that sort of exponential cognitive change in the understanding of what's possible, which is a precursor to the, the actual technological and cost change that need to, are needed to deliver.
0: Before this uh, conversation, Nigel, I rang a, a good friend of mine who's a senior civil servant and I said, give me a really hard question to ask Nigel. And, um, uh, and they said, um, ask him about finance in the... Uh, in Africa and, the, you know, in the South, that there, the story about finance in uh, the developed world and in the fast-developing world is pretty strong and that, that, you know, there is money available for green projects. It's not nearly so clear that there is the investment and funds available to enable the poorest parts of the world to uh, transition. Do you think that is an issue and do you have hope for solutions there uh,
1: it, it's definitely an issue it's, i mean it's both a practical issue although although you speak to the the, the, the um, peers in those countries they'll often say it's more it's not a question of the availability but access i know that's a that's a nuance but it's, so it's um sometimes it's as straightforward as capability like that complex processes make it very difficult for a um a, a, a country without um, a long track record of accessing finance. they just, it's hard. It's hard to get hold of it, even if it's there. So that's some. So we should, we should just distinguish. Like making it available is one thing, but actually making sure that people can access it is another. So that's sometimes about about capacity as much as availability. Um, it's 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 a huge issue, and, and I think it's not it's it's not going to be made easier by sort of fiscal um, limits in, that are just a natural. Imp- Result of um, some of these big, um, well, well, you know, the 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 massive um, injections of public finance that are needed to recover. I do think there are some very interesting ideas floating around now, like for you know some ideas around the issuing of perpetual bonds. You know, the kind of war bond idea where you never have to repay the. So, I I, personally, I think we need to um, explore some of those big ideas. I mean, if you given that money is so cheap, if you can borrow at one percent. Um, you know if you put if you put 10 billion a year into paying the one percent interest on a perpetual bond um, that's a that's a trillion dollars of cash that you generate today right and pay off at a, at a, at a, at a, at a at a very low rate which obviously gets inflated to zero over the in, in the long run so I do think there's a need to think creatively around some of the ways in which I mean I mean the war analogy is valid in some ways in terms of the the Massive impact of COVID on the economy. Obviously, it's not valid in a lot of ways, but I do think it. Um, I do think we will see. We are starting to see, and we'll see a lot more interesting thinking, and I hope then action along those lines, because we can't just allow the realities of a f- fiscal constraint because of, um, if you like, global north investment in rebooting economies to become the cause of um, slowing down the financing of. Um, what are often not energy transitions, but hopefully energy leapfrogs in in the global south. So I, th- um, I think my my hope would be that as we start to emerge from the health crisis and start to get clear about managing this sort of immediate jobs bridge, that um, and I, and I think the initial signs from from the UN, from the UK, from EU, certainly are really encouraging that there's a real um, desire to lean in and lead. That, that that global conversation but it's still, but I think we're still two or three months away I think by by September we'll have a really good sense of what that of what that landscapes looking like but yes I think it's something to look at very closely and not to be complacent about
0: we've nearly run out of time Nigel I've got so many more questions so i, I I'm going to just quick fire them at you and then we'll run out of time but uh, the, the for, for, for one is about the, the the United Nations in all of this is there a tension between an absolute focus on the climate emergency on the one hand and the Sustainable Development Goals uh, on the other, in terms of the kind of prioritisation and headspace um, and kind of symbolism of all this, or do you think that that
1: that these two just go hand in hand? Uh, I mean, you know, whenever you've got seventeen goals, there's a lot of there's there's everyone's got prioritisation um, challenges. Um, I think increasingly, though, that, that we're all understanding the synergies. Okay, the, the most obvious example right now is between climate and health. You know, I've been working on climate change specifically, my, as my job, if you like, for thirteen years now, and it's really only in the last three years that I, as someone who's immersed in it, have become aware of just how strong that health nexus is. And of course, it's it's you know, we had. Um, um, Maria Nera from the World Health Organization on on the Race to Zero launch talking with Mark Carney about that nexus and she was making the the very valid point that we need to make this not just a race to zero emissions but a race to zero premature deaths with a seven million premature deaths because of air pollution every year now that's what's that nearly 20 times every year the COVID um, uh, deaths so far so at the moment we're just putting up with that level so we need to really Address that. I think also the links between nature. You know, we the, there are the three um, sort of Rio Conventions: climate, biodiversity, and desertification. I was actually just in a conversation um, yesterday with Patricia Espinosa, who leads the um, the climate convention work, and about how we how we get better at linking those three up, which is something the UN is trying to do, and we're also exploring with that. because you know, if you're if you're a business, um, th- those are kind of artificial distinctions. Right. If you're and if you're if you're a if you're a city or a region, then um, the, they're they're so interconnected that to think to think of them in silos um, doesn't doesn't often doesn't make sense. So yeah, I think we're getting better at figuring out how to think. But it's it's a classic problem, right? The holistic problem. At one at some point, you've got to break a big problem down into chunks to act. But if you lose sight of the whole because you've got so used to breaking it down into chunks, then you start to make bad decisions because you make, you make bad trade-offs or create unintended consequences. So I think it's that dynamic of focusing enough on something that's chunky enough to act without, and then, and then zooming out again to see the whole and see the connections that I think we're getting better at. But it's, I think it's always, you know, that whole part dynamic in, I think in in life is one of the hardest things to, to, to manage, whether it's in terms of environment or ecosystems or businesses or families or economies right it's always a there's always a dynamic there that we need to be pay careful attention to final question Arja, because I, I i
0: know how busy you are but we're great fans at the rsa of deliberative democratic methodology and we'll see i think in a couple of weeks time the outcome of the citizens climate change assembly that was established by i think six parliamentary select committees and i hear there'll be some really kind of ambitious and interesting ideas coming out of that. We've heard calls for a global citizens' assembly to uh, before uh, Glasgow. Do you think that deliberative methodologies are important if we're going to give our leaders the kind of legitimacy and courage that they need to make long-term decisions?
1: Uh, I have to say I'm a big fan of um, processes like that, really really for two... I think it works both ways, right? I think in terms of... um, being able to give a voice it's a, it's a it's a different way of giving a voice to people but it's also a different way of taking response but you know if you actually sit in a deliberative process and have to think through and hear all the different points and understand the complexity i personally think that's really healthy for a thriving democracy um is is you know i think democracy is much more than you know electing every few years i think that's a really so one of the one of the things which we're looking at right now gonzalo and i um uh, three years ago the fijian presidency and champion in Instituted a process they call the Talanoa dialogues, um, which was a series. Which is a Talanoa is a Fijian indigenous practice of sitting in circles and telling stories and listening. Um, and it's it's different from something. It's not so outcome focused, and maybe we could make it more outcome focused now. Into if we if we broke it down into chunks, as we were saying earlier, like around food or around buildings or around transport. Um, but I think a lot of the value in that, and and people f- remember that as a very high quality part of the process, which we had for a year and then have not repeated. So Gazelle and I are just exploring whether we might riff off that somehow to make it relevant. So yeah, I think I think anything that gets us out of our siloed bubbles to, to listen and exchange and understand how the validity of points of view that we don't necessarily agree with and grapple with that, I think is really healthy for, for um, the process locally and internationally.
0: Well, sadly, that's all we've got time for. So we're going to have to wrap up. Nigel, uh, thanks for talking to me today. I hope we can connect again in the run-up to Glasgow 2021. Please consider the RSA to be there in your service in the vital work that you've got to do. We uh, at the RSA are currently working on a major action research programme addressing issues of ecological and social justice called Regenerative Futures. So if you're watching along today, do check out the RSA website for all the latest policy briefings from our team, as well as news from our growing global fellowship community, amongst whom I know climate is an absolutely key issue. And we'd love to hear your ideas on what's needed to create a just and sustainable recovery. So to get involved in the conversation across social media using the hashtag RSA Bridges. So finally, thank you again to Nigel Topping and thank you all for watching. Great. Thanks, Matthew. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring
1: talks, interviews and animations.